0: this is the podcast that navigates the film industry through the lens of the women doing just that. We're entering the final stretch uh, and this is the penultimate episode and it gives me great pleasure to say that my guest this week is director, writer and actor Desiree Akravan. Desiree's first feature film was 2014's Appropriate Behaviour, in which she also starred. It came off the back of a web series she made in 2010 called The Slope with fellow NYU postgrad film student Ingrid Youngerman. After appropriate behaviour, Desiree had a guest spot on the TV show Girls and also began adapting the book A Miseducation of Cameron Post alongside her co-writer and producer Cecilia Frugelais. The film, which Desiree also directed, would star Chloe Grace Moretz and Sasha Lane and went on to win the Sundance Dramatic Grand Jury Prize in 2018. Around the same time, Desiree also created, wrote and directed a brilliant six-part TV show for Channel 4 called The Bisexual, starring Maxine Peake, Brian Gleeson, Naomi Aki and Desiree herself and all set in London. Since 2018 Desiree has been working on a very personal project which we talk about as well as directing episodes of many brilliant tv shows including Rami, Hacks and Tiny Beautiful Things. We talk about a lot, and if you've ever read an interview with Desiree, you know she's very good at cutting through your bullshit, and this is no exception. We dig into how the past five years have seen her working at a different pace, and why that is. We talk about the moments after success, and the expectations that were placed on her career. We talk about what it actually means or requires to direct an episode of TV. Finding a soulmate in her creative partner Cecilia, and why learning and having fun is at the centre of everything she does. And just to give a bit of context as to why this interview is special for me, I do get into it a little bit at the end. But basically, every season of Best Girl Grip, I have sent an email to Desiree asking if she would come on, and the stars have just never aligned. Her schedule was always incredibly hectic. And you know what? Actually, I'm I'm glad that we only found time this season because I think Desiree is in a really interesting spot in her career where as she remarks herself, she's having to sort of rediscover or redefine her voice. And so it feels like a really contemplative conversation that perhaps wouldn't have happened if we'd spoken around the time she was releasing a film or a TV show. So I'm just very grateful that to have gotten this moment to sit down with her and get into it. This is episode 137 of Best Girl Grip. to start these podcasts is just getting a sense of like if you recall the moment or experience or even person that made you consider a career in film or tv kind of lit that fire inside you I think
1: without realizing it my brother really lit that fire in me we just watched a lot of film and television growing up our parents are immigrants from Iran and we spent like most we didn't have any or I didn't have any friends we just lived like very far from school we're very isolated kids and we spent the glut of our time parked in front of a television. And he had control of the remote. So I will say that it was it was his creation, but also he loved movies, he loved TV, he just loved watching things. And he has a really sophisticated eye and he's just a fan and so am I. And we just love watching things. And I never considered it a possibility to have a career in this industry it didn't seem like something you could do I mean I think not only because there were no women at the helm of many mainstream projects but also it just seemed it wasn't anything that was in within my grasp I lived in New York and then I had a best friend whose father was when I was 14 I met this girl whose father is a playwright and we became really close her name is Hallie Pfeiffer and we're still really close friends to this day and uh, she actually is is show running American Horror Story right now. So I'm very proud of her. We both really stuck to our guns there, but uh, she was writing plays. So I, and I started writing plays and I thought that playwriting would be that next step for me. And I really wanted to be a playwright. And, you know, life just led me down that rabbit hole for a long time. And then eventually I found movies and it just seemed like, oh, this is just like playwriting only you get complete control. Uh, You can really drive a person's eye, you get final say. It's like the, the control freak's dream. So it wasn't my first impulse directing film and television, I didn't really see it as a possibility. But I think when I take a step back and look at everything kind of holistically, it was clearly my brother and his influence and his passion for film and television that lit something in me. And to this day, he's like my favorite person to talk to about movies and and TV and whatever he loves at the moment. Even when we disagree, it gives me a real run for my money.
0: I was going to say, like, what kind of things were you watching? And, like, do you did you feel yourself adopting his taste? And then has that kind of diverged and evolved over time? We watched everything.
1: In terms of movies, it was whatever was out, you know, from, like... I'm trying to think. We came of age at, like, the heyday of the SNL movie. Because I was thinking of, like, Tommy Boy. Like, those really stupid... American communists. I don't know if these came to the UK, but Tommy Boy was like Chris Farley. No, was it Chris Farley and uh, David Spade? Did these like buddy comedies? This like stupid '90s shit. We watched whatever was in the cinema. The Sixth Sense. I remember being blown away. He had a real M. Night Shyamalan phase. I think that I got a lot of of flack for liking the film Signs. And I don't know if I liked Signs or Ardavan liked Signs, but he was a real M. Night Shyamalan aficionado. So I became an M. Night Shyamalan aficionado. Like it was all really tacky mainstream. Like I I didn't discover world cinema until I was in my 20s, but before then it was just like, well, first it was whatever was on MTV, which at that time was like like liquid television. I mean, this isn't great for a UK audience. I'm sorry, this is not gonna be fun for you, but on MTV, in the early 90s in America, there was something called Liquid Television, which were these like... Actually, MTV was amazing. Beavis and Butthead is where Daria got started. And then Daria was so good. I don't know if you guys got Daria.
0: Yeah, I recognize that title. I've never seen it.
1: Oh, you should watch Daria. Like if I could give you anything from this conversation, it's like, go find Daria. It's my favorite angsty young girl comedy animation of all time. Though that is a very narrow title <laughs> very t- not narrow a uh, focus but there's even about head there was daria there was also so liquid television had a bunch of like different mini animated shorts and aeon flux flux i think that's pronounced there was a feature film with charlie's Theron like decades later made of that that was an animation that was on that it was just really experimental stuff like weirdly avant-garde i felt A lot of them. There was a show called The State, which was a sketch comedy show, which we adored, and it, you know, launched the careers of a lot of comedians and filmmakers that we loved, like Michael Showalter, David Wayne, Ken Marino. I think his last name is. But then also we watched really traditional things like Family Matters and uh, Sip of the Bell, The Brady Bunch. I think a lot of what I learned of what it was to be in like a normal family. And by normal, I guess I mean like Western a family and like a Western high school and a Western everything because our house was so, for lack of a better word, ethnic, like our house was so Iranian. It was so specific to the world my parents grew up in but then the one that we went to school in was so different. And I mean, I couldn't really make sense of the one I went to school in. So I spent the majority of my time really loving my television friends and my movie friends and going to the movies and spending all of Friday afternoon at Blockbuster. Well, we didn't have a Blockbuster. We had something called like World Video, which was our video store um, right next to ShopRite where we did our grocery shopping. So we would real quick swing by ShopRite, get some groceries, then go to the video store and just spend like hours browsing titles and reading synopses and wondering okay like what kind of weekend do we want to have and I'll never forget the day that like I just picked up a random there was no sleeve on it it was just the VHS and I brought it to my dad and my brother and I was like maybe six or five and I was like can we get this and my brother saw it and he was like yes I love this movie awesome choice Desi and he never praised me so it was like very exciting and it was the never-ending story which ended up being one of my all-time favorite movies Um, so that weekend we took home like Muppets Take Manhattan and than uh, The writing Story. and That was sort of like the way we all talked to each other too, because we didn't talk a lot as a family unless it was like screaming at the top of your lungs. So like genuine communication happened through laughing together at Tracy Ullman takes on, like she was a huge influence on all of us. Like it's funny, the British people I know are like, Tracy Ullman wasn't really a big thing here, but she was a big thing in the States and we all thought she was hilarious. And that's where The Simpsons started too anyway the long story short is we watch a lot of fucking tv
0: so many references that I don't know but I love that and I'm wondering as well I guess what came up for me there was this idea that obviously it it sounded like you're kind of code switching and you're like getting a lot of like western influences and kind of going to school and then obviously at home you know growing up in an Iranian family and I wondered at what point the two maybe started to like fuse and how that informed your own filmmaking style and the stories that you wanted to tell like was that around the time that you're at NYU or was that not until much later that you kind of felt compelled to tell the story of your heritage to be
1: honest I don't think I have told the story of my heritage or where I come from and I think that has been something that I put on the back burner until I made the bisexual and then after that I really felt compelled to go and face that. Like, I felt like I had kind of done what I wanted to do with sexuality and with my life as an island, away from my family, away from my culture, and also how I grew up. I mean, I came out talking about sex. I came out of the closet talking about, like, Making the Slope, which was this web series I made with my girlfriend at the time. And that's, you know, I'd come out to my parents and we stopped talking. And while we weren't talking, I made that show. It was like one of the more difficult periods of my life. And my girlfriend and I made this comedy, this web series called The Slope. And we were both in film school and we were both like sick of being told what to do. We were not great students. No one thought we were special. We had never gone to fancy film festivals. We weren't one to ones to watch, but we just kind of wanted to make each other laugh and stop trying to impress our teachers. And that's how we made this web series. And the web series was really like how we got started in finding our voices and also finding our audiences. And from then on, it went from there to appropriate behavior and then to Cameron Post and the bisexual. And all of those ideas were at the same time. You know, like I knew I wanted to adapt Cameron Post. I knew as soon as I had made appropriate behavior that I really wanted to talk about bisexuality and what it was like being a bisexual. But I had never deigned to like make my work touch what was the most sacred, which was my my upbringing, my family. It was just this one thing that I could talk about because it was only mine. Like my sexuality was such a personal thing in this all of filmmaking so far in my life had been just like talking exclusively about this taboo subject matter that I wasn't really allowed to and that like this was a perfect format for. But then actually, as soon as we made, Chichilia and I, my writing partner made The Bisexual, we started talking we had always wanted to make something inspired by my parents about the Islamic revolution and we it was slowly starting to gel together and there was like music we really felt inspired by and there were images we knew we wanted to include and then suddenly it just like all came into get to one story and we started working on it with the BBC in 2019 i believe and then for the next 5 years just like had a thousand page one rewrites and now i feel like we finally figured out what the script is and and that is a story that i feel like finally talks about the the world that i came from
0: and that's in pre-production you're you're going to shoot it soon
1: god i hope so
0: no we're still
1: <laughs> we're on our last set of notes uh or last, who knows how many more sets of notes? But I feel like we're we're on a really good polished draft right now, and hopefully we're gonna sign on uh, a casting director and line producer soon and start taking those first steps into making that. But it's a really slow process. Before this, usually it was a fast turnaround. You know, I'd like start writing a script, and a year later I'd have a final script, and then a year after that I'd be on set. And
0: that the past five years have been really slow because of a reason that you can identify in terms of your own writing process or just external reasons such as, you know, pandemic and the way that the industry itself has shifted? To be honest,
1: I think the pandemic was sort of like the cherry on the cake of sluggish, slow snail pacedness I don't, I wish I could blame the pandemic and I could blame what's happening right now with the strike, but it's not that I have needed time. And I think one thing that was exciting about making things when I was younger was just like the momentum and how exciting it was. And I never wanted to slow down. I always wanted to have one, one impulse, push the other one, push the other one and like to have this momentum that grows and grows and grows. And and I really fed off of that. And I, I think the most excruciating part of the past five years for me has been this really slow, painful self-reflection. It's not, Easy to make something that doesn't just represent you, but represents a culture that's never spoken about, a revolution that's never spoken about. You know, the only film out there that touches on the Islamic revolution that I know of is Argo. No one really gets into it. So it was really scary, but also it was really scary even if there had been a thousand films about it to talk about your family I think it's one thing to take off your own clothes and talk about sex and put your body out there to me that never people always came up to me and were like oh you're so brave and I kind of took insult because it was like I don't know is it that horrible to share my own stories and my own body is that like really the most incredibly like humiliating experience in my life no not really is it like yeah what courage yeah exactly like it it was fun it was exciting and it was it didn't matter because I didn't I wasn't precious about myself. I wasn't precious about my own stories, but I feel incredibly precious and protective of my family's stories, and also trying to talk about a time period that I wasn't alive during. Uh, This all happened in the late 70s. And I think it takes a certain amount of audacity to make films, but it really takes an obnoxious level of, of entitlement to go ahead and tell a story that you were not alive for, but that kind of dictated everything about the life you lived. And that's sort of been one of the questions of my life. And I think with this film more than any other, it's been a matter of trying to make sense of stories that no one would speak of. And then first off, I think it's trying to understand the secrets and then try to transform them into a narrative and then a narrative that's entertaining for anybody. Like I think you have this like multi-step process detective work and uncovering the truth and then transforming the truth into fiction and then making that fiction something that makes sense for it, specifically a 90-minute narrative. And all of that work takes time. It takes space. It takes introspection. And in the meantime, I've been doing a lot of uh, directing for television. So the shape of life changed completely in the past five years. And I think, of course, the pandemic had a lot to do with that. And of course the ever-changing nature of the landscape of independent filmmaking has changed that completely. It's not what it was five, six years ago or 10 years ago when I began making movies. It's a really different marketplace. And then also on a very personal level, uh, I think I needed to do all the legwork it takes to, to tackle something quite like this, which I guess brings me to your original question, which I've taken about like five hours to answer, which was just like, how did you figure out, how did you make that transition into telling stories that were like truthful to you and, or to your, your upbringing? And I just, I guess, yeah, the long answer short is like, well, I didn't. And it took until now
0: yeah thank you that was a really in-depth answer and and I you've mentioned you know you've mentioned obviously directing for tv and I want to pin some of the things that you brought up but the thread I kind of want to pick up on is what you were saying about the slope actually and how prior to that you weren't ones to watch and that you kind of weren't singled out as special but after making that you were in filmmakers magazines I think it was like 2012 independent faces and so it's so interesting isn't it how like one show can kind of launch you and I'm wondering what it was about either the aesthetic or just the way that you made that show that suddenly made you special and noticeable
1: it's so funny because that's exactly what happened overnight we were special and it wasn't I feel like before then we were trying so I would I won't speak for Ingrid I was trying so hard to be special according to the rules that it was like you need to shoot on super 16 you need to have someone famous in your short film. You need to play at such and such festival. Like there were really unspoken rules and spoken rules that you could feel around you. Uh, I was at film school. I went to NYU for my master's in uh, directing. And that was the vibe. And even before I did that, you know, like there was just this feeling of like, you win this contest, you apply for this thing, for this grant, even before I went to film school. And the minute I stopped trying to please anyone else, and it's so cliched and stupid, but it was 100% true. And it was interesting because like, I think coming out of the closet helped me a lot with that, where I was suddenly like, oh, your rules don't apply to me anymore. Like I tried and I failed and I'm not going to try anymore because it's a waste of, of both of our time. So making The Slope, there was no professional ambition with it. It was just like, can we do something to remind ourselves why we're pursuing this in the first place? And it looked like shit. We made it for nothing. Like I had just spent, I think, like 16 grand shooting a film on Super 16, like a stupid amount of money to buy and develop film and rent equipment and pay for people's time and it was so hard like every step of the way it was like and it's funny I think a lot of directing too is trying to figure out like where's the best use of your effort what's the best use of your time and money and favor pulling and that is that never stops no matter what level you're working at it's sort of imagining like okay what's going to land on the screen and what's in vain And I think for us, it was just important that we were able to move really fast and follow our first impulse and be as excited about it as possible, which at that time meant like write the script on Monday, shoot it on Wednesday, edit it Thursday, put it online Saturday. You know, like it was just like we have to move really quickly because that's we're so tired of getting approval and we can't apply to festivals because that really broke us down. So let's just put it on the Internet. And, you know, we're not going to write more than X number of drafts, you know, like it was just, let's follow our first impulse. And yeah, it looks like shit. Yeah, a friend would hold the camera every week, you know, we did all of the jobs, Um, except for like, we'd ask a friend to do sound, a friend to do camera work and we'd buy them lunch or something you know or like friends to be actors in it we acted in ourselves because we didn't want to hold auditions and each episode was five minutes it was like we don't want to make this long thing we want to tell a joke and get in and get out and I think at the time the thing we were struggling with was just like what is it to be gay but not fit the cliches and to like not see yourself reflected around you and to feel kind of homophobic even though you are gay And even though you're like fighting for the right to be gay, but to also find what it is to be gay in the mainstream, like kind of gauche. And that was sort of the whole point. And that's it. It said nothing more, and nothing less. And it was like deeply stupid, but it made us laugh. And we enjoyed doing it. And we got to also like skewer ourselves. I think it was like funny to be like, Well, what's a fictional version of Desiree? What's a fictional version of Ingrid? Maybe I'm a bit princessy, I'm a bit entitled. So what if I'm like the total asshole? And then, like, you're, you know, kind of more of the straight guy in the gay comedy, so to speak. But that was it. And it was, it wasn't the best thing in the world. But I think also like we learned how to live with something that wasn't the best and I think the reason it did well I, I think who knows I guess like everyone needed a gay thing to enjoy that day because like also luck is a huge part of why some things do well and some things don't but I think the reason it had this like modest success for us was that it was so there were no barriers I'll say for myself between my voice and the project I think sometimes when you get really when a person is like strong as a writer or as a comedian, it's really easy to get lost in the bullshit of, of your of production, capital P production. And I needed something that had no time spent producing at all. And that was really helpful for me at that time in my life, that it was like, I'm wasting so much energy producing and adding frills, and it's milking quality from the heart of this thing. And so what if I just focused on the heart of it? And the thing, the reason I want to be a filmmaker, which is in that moment this comedy and these these points about like like saying the most taboo element of something quite sensitive
0: I think what's interesting about obviously coming off the back of talking about your project with the Iranian revolution and and obviously the journey that you've gone on since the slope is that it feels like you had to kind of create conditions for yourself not to be precious and to like free yourself up from expectations of what you should be doing in order to facilitate you know several projects down the line your ability to do a project where you you know precious has bad connotations but you know where you can care deeply about something enough to be that specific it's just yeah it, it strikes me that that's quite a, a funny journey to go on in a sense um and I wonder if you feel that as well that with each project that you've done you can be more I guess specific or you know ask for more or, or demand more or, or know perhaps more what you what it is you're reaching for as an artist
1: yeah, for sure. I think you become more ambitious and you change, like with the slope, it was like, I, I need this sense of urgency and I need to have nothing get in the way. And now I think as you develop, each job needs something different. And with this, it's sort of, I need to be precious. I need to take the time it takes and to not give up on it. Like there are many, many times in the past five years that I've tried to give up on this project. That i'm working on and it's really hard to know when you're pushing forward in vain and so much of life as a filmmaker before I, I made the slope felt like it was in vain and i also think that what i never realized before i made i guess before i started writing the iran film is that your voice changes that like the slope held me, helped me find my voice and figure out who I was as a director and as a writer and as a, you know, performer and what I cared about. And then I aged. It's been like, I don't know, 15 years since then. (laughs) Or not yet, but almost, you know, I'm 38 now. I'm not the same person. And what I need to work on and get out and share is so different and how I feel and my humor has changed too. And I think trying to meet yourself on the other side of that after you've established a voice and talked about that voice and honed it is, has been a real shock to me
0: yeah 100%. And I I think that's why the other thing that you know struck me when you're talking about the slope is how you were saying you you were kind of confronted by all these rules particularly at NYU about, you know, what a filmmaker's steps should be. And I'm wondering if that has that's something that has sort of come up repeatedly in your career you know in the sense that maybe after winning a Sundance prize at, you know for education, you were met with expectations for what you should be doing next and and how do you sustain that sense of trying to forge your own path and not listen to outside voices yeah you're
1: totally right after after I won Sundance there really was this feeling of like where's your Marvel movie like Kathy Yan had just gotten uh, Birds of Prey, which is DC. And Chloe Zhao had just gotten The Eternals, I believe, is her Marvel movie. I don't remember. Yeah, it's Eternals, yeah. So everyone had sort of elevated. And it's funny because both Kathy and, and Chloe are people who, my contemporaries at NYU, we weren't in the same class, but we were in the same, like, you know, general vicinity of each other. And this is something I got asked a lot in interviews. And it, became contagious and I never wanted to make a Marvel film. Like I don't even enjoy DC film, you know, like I don't read comics other than Archie comics. Like I I wasn't that person. And yet I became so blindly ambitious and determined to climb the ladder No matter what the ladder looked like, no matter where it was heading, I just wanted to climb to the top and I got really blind for a while, which I also think is another reason why it's been really, it's taken me quite so long to find my voice again and figure out what this next film feels and sounds like, because it's not going to feel and sound like what other people want it to. And I remember after I won Sundance, I took a lot of meetings and people, whenever I told people that I really wanted to make this film next, you'd see their eyes glaze over, you'd see their heart sink. And it was like, oh, shit, I can't, I can't commodify this girl the way I want to. And then the question inevitably of like, well, can it be in English? And can like Angelina Jolie star in it? Like, could it be for some like hot altruistic actress, movie star who, like, and I understand, I'm not an idiot. Like I have I I understand why this is the case and I don't think anyone's evil or against artistic expression. I think this is a business and I want so badly to be an intelligent creative in this business. I don't want to waste money. I don't want to make things in vain or just to like work through my childhood issues. Like this is an important thing to me as well to try to figure out what the smartest way to navigate this business is while staying true to my own voice and my desire to put work into the world that is like genuinely good and not only good, but additive to the global conversation. Like I think it's it's intense to take up this much space in the world to say like, you should listen to my voice. You should spend 90 minutes of your time sitting and listening to a story that I am telling you. And I take that privilege incredibly seriously. And I want to put work out there that is Necessary and then also not in vain, you know, something that people will pay to go watch and will earn its own keep in this business place. And I think that desire to do all of those things can be really crippling. (laughs) And it's a very hard, high bar to set for yourself.
0: And I wonder as well if, like, part of that navigational exploration of the industry and, and figuring out, you know, what is the most intelligent way to make work and how do you redefine the stories that are necessary, you know, was part of the reason that you sort of did the bisexual it's, it sort of seemed like at the same time I obviously know the industry works in weird ways so it might be that you were developing one earlier than the other but you had a kind of channel for a, a British kind of um, channel um doing the bisexual and then obviously a quite a, um, a classically you know American indie in the form of miseducation of camera and post and it felt like you were sort of really exploring the far reaches of the industry and maybe which one would appeal to you most and I wondered if you could just reflect on that experience and whether you were sort of flexing different muscles and how you found those two kind of experiences and and whether they felt similar or they were quite different in that way
1: the bisexual I wrote the first episode of the bisexual before I wrote Cameron Post that pilot had been pitched around LA and then it was rejected everywhere this was in 2014 and so I didn't really know what to do next and I was traveling that whole year with Appropriate behavior into in festivals, and when it came out theatrically in America, it didn't really do that much business. It wasn't. It was it, critics liked it, but it didn't really do very much business, and it was fine. Like I, I just didn't quite know what to do next, and I had this pilot script I had written, and Chichilia, my my writing producing partner, I who had produced uh, Appropriate Behavior, she. I had shared with her Cameron Post the book and I said, you know, like one day we should make this. I don't think it should be our next film, but I think we should like do this someday. And she read it and she got the rights and immediately. And she was like, no, I think this is our next film. And you know, she's way smarter than me. So I I was like, all right, great, let's do that. But at the time I didn't really have a source of income either. I think one thing that happens when you're at film school is, or even if you're not, I don't know when you're wanting to make films, you have this feeling like, oh, and if I make a feature and if it goes to Sundance, then my life is made. And it wasn't made, I didn't know how to pay my rent. I felt really scared during that period. And like both the highest highs and the lowest lows, you're like, my dream came true. I had never been so happy or proud in my whole life. And yet I genuinely didn't know how to string together an income. And I wouldn't for a long time. That's the interesting thing that like, I really didn't know how <laughs> tricky it would be <laughs> to be you know, featured in the New York Times and not quite knowing how to get a job to save your life. But like asked to speak all over the world and flown first class to Australia several times in one year, you know, like I felt so fancy and so pathetic at the same time. <laughs> And that's the hustle of the American independent filmmaker uh, or I'm sure any independent filmmaker, to be honest. But, but basically I was in this position where I had made the film and I had written this pilot and neither were moving forward. And then I also was going through a breakup in New York uh, with my girlfriend who I lived with. So I then was uh, flown out to the UK. So my Cecilia, who I mentioned like 40 times already is uh, she's Italian, but she lives in London and we met I did my junior year abroad in London when I was 20 and I had an incredible time like I made my first short film I made my you know lifelong collaborator uh, in Cecilia and it sort of just like kind of jump started my life that one year I spent in London and then I'd come back every Year to visit her, and then you know every six months she would come to New York, and then every six months I'd go to London, and we'd we'd spend some time together. And then so when I was invited to go share the film in the UK for the 2015 release, I went and I stayed with her, and it was just a really wonderful. I think I was out for the the Gay Film Festival for the BFI Flare, so we were out there for Flare, and it was just such a great homecoming and then the theatrical release was really positive and and it felt like we had such a strong reach in the uk or particularly in london that we had never had in new york or la where i had launched the film and then i started taking some meetings and it just seemed like there was such an appetite for the bisexual that it actually could exist there and i had done a lot of press too like i was there doing press And I had a two week period there and it was time to go home. And I just didn't get on my flight home. I just stayed on Cecilia's couch. And I was like, I think I'm gonna give this a go. So I found an agent, I pitched the bisexual. I had my option of where I wanted to take it. And that was it, you know, I built a life there. And it was through the bisexual that I was able to pay my rent and get a visa to stay in the UK. But also on a personal level, I felt like I'd come home. I was really happy there. And I had a sense of who I was and what I wanted to make. So it wasn't really a choice of like American indie director versus British comedian. It was just those steps made sense as they were happening. And so I, I stayed on Tuchilia's couch for, I want to say like three months until I found my own apartment. A deep, deep apologies to her husband, who's had to put up with me way more than any husband's ever had to put up with an obnoxious gay best friend. We started writing Cameron Post as I started developing The Bisexual with a British company, and those things happen side by side and with the same collaborators. I mean, with the exception of the production company, it was Cecilia and I writing Cameron Post and then writing all of the following episodes of The
0: Bisexual. That sounds incredibly intense. I'm wondering like what it is about your relationship that like works because obviously she's a co-writer but also your producer and you know they're often thought of as gold dust you know it's so difficult to find a producer that kind of stays with you throughout the long term and gets your vision and gets all the things that you want to do. So I'm wondering what it is about Cecilia that you think you know you just have each other's backs and you know what it is that each of you is kind of trying to say.
1: I think we're trying to say the same thing. I think it's just that kind of magical gift where you meet someone and you both share the same taste and we have very different points of view. We come from very different backgrounds, but we're trying to say the same thing weirdly. And we both agree the same about quality, you know, like, when we look at notes when we we break things down we can both agree this is good that is this is bad this is a bigger priority than this or blah 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 and it's not that it's like seamless or easy you know there are like painful moments throughout every step of the way but we have this kind of unshakable faith in one another and that isn't to say it hasn't been tested because our lives are so different, and because our priorities are so different. You know, when Chichilia had children, she had children, her first child, right before we started shooting the bisexual. And it was just one of the hardest things I've had to go through, (laughs) which is so obnoxious to be like, my best friend's pregnancy. But it's true, like, when, when your work is so much is your identity. And you share that identity with a collaborator when that collaborator puts something ahead of it, like building a family. I think especially when one of you is gay and the other isn't. I mean, of course, if she had been gay, it would have been equally heartbreaking, but they're just, the timeline is really different. And the execution is really different. We were both really shocked. Um, she got pregnant very quickly, very easily. And that process was, you know, a very different process than it would have been if she had been gay too. And that also is something that happens when you have a collaborator or a best friend for decades, just like with refinding your voice. I think you need to refind each other. And I've just been really lucky that I've had this, this person in my life who has is kind of my soulmate. But at the same time, that's not to say that we haven't had to find each other on the other side of drifting apart
0: I want to talk a little bit more about I guess your directing style or you know not even I guess visually but how you maybe like run sets as well and just how you manage people and and get the best out of everyone and make sure that everyone is on the same page and, and that you're caring for each other but you know while also working towards this thing that you've written and have ushered into being like how do you go about almost like you know setting the ground rules or the boundaries for a set like that
1: Well, first off, I'd like to say that I'm not sure I always do that. And I'm sure that you could find people who've worked with me who've been like, she doesn't do that. (laughs) I think I, in a perfect world, would hope that I do that. And there have been times when I've achieved that. And there have been times where I've really failed. It's interesting. I think that there's this quote that Catherine Braylaw says, the DVD extras of Fat Girl. And I know you saw the poster of that film hanging behind me. So clearly it's a film I take quite seriously. But she was saying in an interview, I don't make the film. I am the film. Everyone else makes it. And it's true. And I didn't realize it until I got on my first set, but I don't do jack shit. You're kind of like a conductor and it's your job to constantly be taking the temperature. And some actors really need to feel like they're in the weeds with you and that You guys are in it together, and then other actors want to be left alone and they don't want to hear your voice at all. So same for some production designers, same for everyone, you know, like every collaborator needs something different. And I think the real joy of this work is to take the temperature and be reading people to see what will bring their best work to the table. And also to communicate your blueprint to like and give them the space to bring their own life and heart and creativity to the table, and to somehow find this way to achieve everything you want without having anybody feel micromanaged or backseat driven, you know? And I think it has a lot to do with making people... To me, it's like how... It's very personal. Every director does it completely differently. And it's like going to a dinner party. Like There's not one great dinner party everyone is a different approach. and every time you watch a movie, it's sort of like having a dinner party or like going to dinner at the house of that director and like there are great films that do not feel anything at all like each other and weren't made like each other and I'll say for myself that like for me to do my best work I need to feel safe and understood and accepted and that's sort of something tochlia did for me when I met her and I think I did for her and why we work so well together but I don't think that's all directors and I don't think that's what all actors want or all DPs want you know like I think it's just very personal so I feel lucky that I curate a group of people who can work with me like that but I've been on my own sets where I have not felt safe or okay and it was a mess so I'm I also want to admit like really openly that I haven't always succeeded at this and there have been times where Everything feels like it's going wrong. I don't feel okay. And I haven't been able to support anyone else because I haven't felt supported at all. So that happens too. And you just get through it. But I would like to think that in the best of times, it's it's a really fun game of reading people and anticipating their needs and playing a mind game sometimes, you know, too. Like some people need to feel like they're at the wheel and you need to give them like a fake dummy wheel and know that like, it's not attached to anything, but let them feel like they're driving. And you're like, all right, great. And that's like part of the fun of it.
0: Yeah. I love that analogy of dinner parties though. And because so often I think, we, we think you know a piece of art or a film or you know a tv series kind of has to be the best thing ever and we sort of don't attach that level of um, expectation to a dinner party and in, in a way we kind of almost revel in the disaster of you know a dessert that's on fire or you know a dish that no one likes and we we don't let it stop us from throwing them again so I like the idea it kind of takes the pressure off I think the the next thing Um, I want to talk about your, you know, your TV career, which, you know, as you, as you sort of alluded to yourself earlier, has sort of taken off and you've, you know, been directing really prolifically in that space on some really, you know, amazing shows, um, to name a few, Hacks, Rami, Tiny Beautiful Things, which I watched recently and cried my eyes out. But I'm wondering as well, how you go about deciding which projects that you're going to take, because it seems to me that is quite a curated list and that, you know, you have Bought yourself to those projects but obviously again we spoke about um the bisexual and and a tv project being a, a stable you know financial decision so how do those two things kind of rub up against each other when you're looking for kind of a, a directing gig on a tv show
1: it really is a perfect storm of timing and taste because i didn't set out to be a director for hire on television. And also, like, and I think my needs for a short-term job came at the same time as, you know, the television boom was really hitting its, like, heyday in terms of, and also the Me Too movement had hit its heyday, you know, like in 2019, suddenly I was out of a job. And Everybody wanted a female director attached to whatever job they were doing. And it was all happening very fast. There was just a lot of production going on in America. And that's what happened, you know, like, and, and it's true. It is, it is a, a list that's been curated by me because I think certain things speak to you and certain things feel important. Like Rami was very exciting when that came to me, but also it came to me. And I think that it's not, I think people thought of me for certain jobs because they made sense too. Uh, But Rami made a lot of sense. And I was really lucky to get that episode, which, you know, I'll always feel really grateful to have been a part of, um, because it's like a particularly gay episode of Rami. And I really felt grateful to have been able to work with Leith, who's the actor who who starred in it. It was sort of like a one-off for Uncle Nassim. And I, I just, it's hard to take credit for any of those episodes though, because I'm not the creator. And not only am I not the creator, I'm also, I feel like the showrunner is the director. And when you step on to direct television in America, you're a glorified AD. Or like I like to say, like you're fun uncle. Like you come on set and you you're you're there to to have a good time and to by, quote unquote have a good time, which means like make everyone comfortable, and you're there to kind of take the temperature of alright, like is how is this running and how could it run better? What's every there's always something that needs attention. There's always some problem on set and you need to come in there and diagnose that problem and do your best to keep it moving. And I think directing for television has been really good for my ego because it's been humbling. I can't take credit for why any of these shows are great. I come in and I help us make our days. And if I can be helpful to someone, if I can find a moment where I can come up with, you know, a clever idea or a good piece of direction for an actor you know that's sort of the height of my day but also sometimes you know on my first job one time I kept having ideas and thoughts and I kept getting this sense that I'm doing it wrong like this there's something not feeling good about the way I'm doing this job and I approached it like I would have approached any of my own work And then one day I said, like, all right, I'm going to try to have no opinions today. And I'm going to see how it works. And I literally said not like yes to everything. I didn't interrupt anything. I didn't have my own ideas. I just encouraged other people. And by the and we moved very fast because, of course, I was I I approved every frame. I approved everything. And by the end of the day, three separate people came up to me and said, you were on fire today.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Yeah. And that's sort
1: of what it is to direct television. It's like you enable the people around you, you keep your mouth shut, you make your day. And also like, and you're not lazy, you're on, you're awake. It's it's an exhausting job and it takes a lot from you. You know, you're you're there to facilitate movement and you can't do that passively. It does have to move forward or it atrophies but I think a really good TV director is someone who enables the creators. It's not my show. It's not my thing, but you know what? I could be doing it wrong. That's the other thing about directing that like no one ever told me in film school is like, there are a thousand ways to do it and no two people do it alike. And there isn't a checklist it's instinctual and some things you're made to do and some things, you're not. And sometimes you get on the set and you're like, oh, this isn't the greatest fit. But fortunately, I haven't really had that experience for the most part. I have been really selective. And with each job, there's usually either a collaborator you really want to work with or something in the subject matter of the work that excites you, something you want to test out, you know, that feels cool and new and exciting. And you find a reason for being there. But it's it's just not directing as I knew it to be previously in my career.
0: Does that not mess with your head, though, or your center of gravity? Like if you're being patted on the back in TV for keeping your mouth shut almost. And then, you know, it's almost like I feel like you would have to reset to be like, no, 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 I'm I'm allowed to like vocalize discontent when it comes to creating something that's my own on your own yeah i mean no it totally sucks
1: like in a lot of ways it's brilliant and in a lot of ways it's very painful and in a lot of ways the past 5 years have been painful but i think that every year as a professional creative is going to be somewhat painful because this job keeps reinventing itself and you keep having to check and recheck your ego and like where your efforts are best placed and the truth is that directing television for the for most people is a day job and it's something you do while you try to figure out the things that you're trying to say. And like, as far as day jobs go, I'm incredibly blessed.
0: Given that, you know, you've been very candid about the last five years of so being slower. And as you just said, painful. I'm wondering if there's a piece of advice or like a mantra or something that you have like repeated to yourself to help you you know, stay focused on what it is and why it is that you're doing what you do.
1: First of all, I haven't, I've had so many bleak moments and so many times where I've questioned everything I'm doing, but there's something I, and so like, this isn't help that helpful, but, and it's okay. And I also think like, I think it's okay to question yourself. I think it's okay to have to fight for what you're doing. I think it's okay for it to hurt. I think life hurts a lot of the time. I think it's funny. I like, my girlfriend has this story that I love so much that her, her best friend, Friend has a child who at one moment, like at five, was like, Mom, what's the point of living? And her mom was like, Ooh, that's a good question. I'll get back to you. And then the daughter the next day at bedtime was like, Mommy, I think I figured it out. The mom was like, What? And she was like, It's to learn lessons and have fun. And I love that story so much because in these five years more so than any other time in my life, I've really asked that question of like, what's the point of this? Like if I'm not getting constant approval approval and praise and love and enablement all over the place, like what is the point of this? Because I became kind of used to that uh, in my 30s. It really is to learn lessons and then to like try to have fun. Sure. Like, yeah, have some fun. And also like it's okay to have fun even when you're not being praised. But it is all about lessons, and I think that makes me feel a lot better. That, like it's this is the point of it. It's supposed to be if you're not learning, and learning doesn't always have to be painful. But like if you're not actively learning something, then I don't know. I I, I can't ima- I can't think of a time in my life where I wasn't actively learning something. I don't know how to finish that sentence. But I guess what I'd say is like when I first got into Sundance, I kept I kept thinking like shit. I really wish I had believed in the inevitability of my success because I wasted so much time hating myself for not being good enough. And I felt grateful, but also really sad that I had like just never ever, I was just so stressed for so long. And when I got into Sundance, I was like, I felt this relief I had never ever experienced before. I mean, from childhood, I really felt like a loser my whole life. And then suddenly Sundance was like, guess what? You're not. And I was like, awesome. And then I think in these past five years, I keep telling myself, just believe in the inevitability of your success. Like, why, Why are you forgetting that just because it's been a slow or a different or a slightly more painful couple of years? Things change. And that's such a comfort to me too, even when they're great, And even when they're terrible, even when you wish they never would, they will change. And you have to find a way to like learn lessons and have fun while doing it. Or like you will learn lessons. Like you don't have to find that. You're inevitably gonna learn lessons. And then can you find a way to have fun? And that is the question I keep asking myself right now. And I think of that little girl. I'm like, yeah, it really is. The only point of it is like you keep learning because you keep making mistakes you keep or just like falling on your face like that's what it is to be alive and i think before i was under the impression that it's like no 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 you rise to the top and then you stay on top and that was such bullshit
0: and also you wouldn't want to stay on top necessarily like that to me like Top is a plateau, right? Like if you're there once and then there forever, you're denying yourself of the peaks and troughs out of which the lessons you need to learn come. So it's, yeah, it's never been appealing necessarily.
1: I mean, I don't even know what it would look like to stay on top. Like I'm trying to think of other directors. I'm trying to think of all these different people. and, And I think you're right too. Like if we look at this purely from an artistic point of view, like those people who do stay on top, like, I mean, I hate, I have... There are a lot of, I'm not going to name names because that's a dick move, but like there are a lot of like 90s male auteurs who stayed on top. I guess if we'll say who stays on top, they stay on top and and there's something that happens to their creative voices that they like dampen. And it's the same thing over and over again. And I find it really tragic.
0: Yeah, you can feel some vitality or like relevance being sapped away from their work. And finally, um, I always end these podcasts by asking for a film recommendation from my guest um, by a woman director. Um, so who, I mean, I feel like Fat Girl might be you know, in there in the mix somewhere, but who are, the, who are the directors in the films that you return to when you're looking for fun or inspiration? Oh God, how sad is it that the first two
1: titles that came to my head are not by female directors and I feel really sad about them. But Fat Girl is definitely a great film by a female director. Oldies but goodies are for sure like Morven collar. I think that's such a great film and it has so much movement. And I think when I feel stagnant and low, I come back to it. High Art is a film that I loved so much when I was coming out. And I it was like the only time... I felt gayness was sexy on screen. I think a lot of the slope and appropriate behavior and the bisexual well, bisexual were a response to feeling like everything I saw that was gay was really cringe and I feel that again watching and just like that like I'm actively angry at like how horrible the depiction of Miranda as a lesbian is and like how cringe all these romantic conquests are whatever anyway I, I find them all cringe and sad and I feel like uh, high art was the first time that I was like yes yes it can be Hot. It can be real. It, lust can exist. And it's not like I think my work is so hot and has so much lust. I just think it was, there was just something not relatable about so many things. And I guess I, I can happily skewer and just like that and say, like, it is not relatable that Che Diaz is like a hot, sexy stand up comedian that anybody would <laughs> leave their life for. Let me think A Portrait of a Lady on Fire, but that's like obvious. Everyone knows they love that. I would say Paris Police are Persepolis, which is how English speakers say it. That's a film I come to time and again, and um, I recently rewatched and and made me so happy. So yeah, that seems like a pretty, oh wait, one more that no one ever talks about, but, um, and I haven't watched in years, but I'd like to rewatch is Vagabond.
0: Yes, Agnes Varda.
1: Yeah, I really like that film. And Clear in the Afternoon, of course I rewatched that recently. I've been rewatching shit. Like I think I'm struggling a lot with movies, contemporary films, to inspire and every time I'm like tonight I'm watching a movie and I spend like five hours going through a thousand streamers websites and starting different movies and getting disappointed so like that's why I'm on this streak of re-watching my oldies but goodies and and those films have brought me a lot of joy lately.
0: Yeah absolute goodies thank you so much for coming on the podcast it really means a lot and I don't know if I've ever explained why but in my first job um, I was working for a streaming platform and the first film they ever released was Appropriate Behaviour and so like my I felt like my career kick-started <laughs> with like your first film um. and it's like you know I've been in the industry now for 10 years and it's obviously been coming up to 10 years since Appropriate Behaviour came out so yeah it feels really um special that you're you know you're on the final season of this podcast so thank you so much. That's crazy thank you for working on it. Oh thank you so much for today and for your your films and your work. Thanks for having me. It was such a pleasure. If you liked what you heard please do rate, review and subscribe, spread the good word etc. If you're interested in other conversations like this please do seek out my episodes with filmmakers Eva McArdle, Prano Bailey Bond, Kathy Brady and also the cinematographer on The Miseducation of Cameron Post, Ashley Connor. In the meantime have a great week and I'll be back next Friday with Best Girl Grip's final ever episode.